Chapter 6, 1995. Sharing code and processes to build Office pays off, and the concept of the suite takes hold in the market. The Windows schedule becomes a death march to the finish for what's hoped to be a revolutionary new operating system. Netscape IPOs in the summer of 1995, weeks before the public availability of Windows 95. Section 35, Windows 95, August or Bust. Overall performance is sluggish. Tasks throughout the suite applications are more complex to perform than that in previous versions. PC Week, August 21st, 1995. Office 94 had a plan in place with a date and resources, as well as the major architectural vets of 32 bits and the suite. There was so much focus on getting started and the resource constraints so extreme that while this was the first release of an Office product, it would also be the last release for which the planning was fully distributed to each team with little centralized effort. The organization was set with feature teams for each product and one in the OPU. For the most part, the feature team leads were running this project, at least from the start, as the more senior leaders were supposed to focus more on Office 96. Putting in place the plan for Office 96 happened in parallel with a different set of people and a lot more attention from the business unit managers. Unless there was something specifically troubling, for the most part, Office 94 was flying under the radar of desktop apps and had almost a skunkworks feel to it, at least at the start. That didn't last long for me. As the new PM leader in Office, I was wearing two hats, juggling both releases. In hindsight, the first 12 months in Office were probably the time I put in the most hours, as I was learning how to manage managers for the first time, not to mention learning the desktop apps ways of working. While I was juggling, among our team of about 15 program managers, Mike Conti, email Mike Khan, was the primary program manager on OPU driving Office 94. Mike joined the Excel team after experience running his own Macintosh startup. On Excel, he was key to Excel gaining adoption at large customers, especially banks. A true New Yorker, Mike wore all black and had a no-nonsense attitude. He laid the groundwork for the release, but early on moved to a new role on the Windows team. He easily transitioned the release to Heike Kenerva, email Heike K. Products had a formal management team that was ultimately accountable, but each release saw people step up and take on the informal leadership required for complex cross-group work. This was Heike's release and time to step up for him. Heike was a Finnish Olympic-caliber skier who found his way to Microsoft by studying business and computer science on a scholarship to the University of Alaska after his mandatory Finnish military service on a submarine. He joined desktop apps in the Shared Interoperability Group and cut his teeth on shipping the enormously complex OLE or Olay technology. As it turned out, Heike had absolutely the perfect demeanor to lead all of the teams through shipping the first synchronous release of Office. He was unflappable and possessed a military precision and the dedicated work ethic of an Olympian. And when needed, he could make light of a situation with a Finnish submariner expression that did not translate well at all into business English or, frankly, polite company. Heike led the newly formed office-wide project meetings, the first time key managers across all the apps assembled routinely to make progress on the work. These meetings started off weekly, and then as milestones approached, daily, and then even twice daily. Well, this is only a few people at the beginning. It was the organizational and cultural shift required to begin to operate as a suite, not a bundle. These meetings became the operational heartbeat of the team, not a tax while the real work happened elsewhere. I know it seems ridiculous to mention that we scheduled a weekly meeting or meeting for a new project, 
But up until this point, creating office essentially flew under the radar without an operational motion. From an engineering perspective, the move to 32 bits was fairly smooth, especially since much of the work had been done earlier in the side projects of making native apps for Windows NT as proofs of concept, and then to make them available for sale later. From a practical perspective, however, the transition to 32 bits hit Microsoft where it cared about the most, performance. If there was one thing deep in the culture of the company, it was squeezing the most out of the scarce compute resources of CPU and memory. The move to 32 bits was inevitable, but the impact on performance was counterintuitive. In moving all the apps to 32 bits, no surprise, but all the code got twice as big, and much of the data stored in memory got twice as big as well. Moving all that around made things slower. It was crazy since people thought moving to 32 bits would just be twice as fast. For Office, 32 bits didn't mean very much. Word already handled long documents, and spreadsheets could be pretty big. These products grew up in extremely limited memory. In fact, many of our own tests were showing that 16-bit versions of apps performed better on Windows 3.1 and were even a bit slower on Chicago. That's because Chicago was also going through this widening experience with the operating system code. Everything was expanding, except the system requirements, the amount of memory a PC required for Chicago and Office as printed on the box. The online version shows an early slide from the development team of Office showing the 16 and 32-bit performance characteristics. It didn't take long for fingers to start pointing. That's natural. The real issue was not necessarily the benchmarks, which over time would tend to work themselves out, we hoped, but just how much memory was required to get reasonable performance. The key market promise for Chicago was that customers could upgrade their Windows 3 systems to Chicago and things would just get better. But if those systems had only four megabytes of memory, or yikes, the two megabytes of memory, these systems would be horribly slow. And even more so if they also upgraded to Office. PCs were not only expensive in the 1990s, but they were also treated as capital assets by companies. They had five-year life cycles, amortization schedules, and an expectation that the software could change over time without expensive and very difficult or impossible to implement hardware upgrades. Upgrading memory required a day or more of downtime and a truck to roll with a tech and probably hundreds of dollars of hardware. There was not much we could do about this, but continue to work to reduce memory usage. There were some significant efforts and tools and analysis and some amazing work across Windows and Office to make things work on 4 megabytes. But ultimately, 8 megabytes was recommended compared to required. This fell short of the 2 megabytes Windows 3 required. As it would turn out, dumbling the system requirements for each release of Windows became the norm, as I would point out, in about 12 years when we launched Windows 7. Office trended remarkably well, and for many releases, the typical Office application, Word, Excel, or PowerPoint, did not substantially increase system requirements of about 2 to 4 megabytes per application on top of the OS. The online version includes a PC Week worst-case review from August 21st, 1995. It also includes the system requirements that were pictured on the boxes for both Windows and Office. While reviewers and people in stores immediately noticed the system requirements because that was what they were trained to look at first, the main visible feature and described in the marketing material was Office just using long file names, and that work was pretty straightforward. In hindsight, it's hard to believe that for the first 15 years of MS-DOS computing, human beings tolerated naming their work with cryptic eight-character names. Still, even today, Microsoft email names continue to be eight characters. Dealing with these 8.3 character names forced people to create all sorts of algorithms for naming files. 
While the convention was that the three characters after the period would determine which product created the file, there was nothing in MS-DOS, or subsequently Windows or Chicago, that required that, an area where Macintosh continues to be better even to this day. As a result, companies created rules for how files should be named internally. For example, all the reports for the fourth quarter might be budget Q4, details.q4, summary.q4 for the spreadsheet, word file, and presentation, instead of the default XLS, .doc, and .ppt. Chicago is moving to a model where the file characters of the name, the creating program, was even hidden in the interface as had been done on Macintosh from the start. Even though such a change was long requested or desired, as with everything Microsoft did, the pain of the installed base and embedded resistance to change always seemed to make a showing. A major bank once sent me a long feedback memo explaining how pre-release tests of Office for Chicago made their naming convention difficult to use and considered it a showstopper bug. Long file names broke how they stored all their quarterly documents in folders. Showstopper was a bug believed to be so bad that a product could not ship, and in our case, it meant it would not be purchased. Being able to use hundreds of characters for, to name a file was first viewed as negative by some, despite being so liberating. The feature of not needing to worry about the last three characters of the name was a feature, so we thought, not a bug, as customers told us. Ultimately, people adjusted, but this served as a reminder for how difficult transitions are even when the benefit is readily apparent. Between 32 bits and long file names, we believed we had landed most of the critical features for Chicago. There was a long list of small changes as well, which we often tagged in our RAID database with the source for the bug TT for tiny and trivial. As Chicago made more progress, the list seemed to grow in scope and everything that came up was viewed as priority one by the Windows team for Office to do. There was a strong belief that if Office did not implement something, then no other developers would. And within Microsoft, there was no confusion over who was driving the agenda. As the schedule marched through 1994, it became clear that the features were, we were implementing to be more of a Chicago application were helping us to become more of a consistent suite. Even though we were struggling across the apps and OPU to become consistent, the even bigger stick of Windows made it possible to drive some features that we otherwise would not have done. While not as central to the product experience, but in some ways more visible, the Microsoft Office Manager, a tiny little bar of buttons that floated in the upper corner of the screen that enabled one to switch between apps with a single mouse click, was a surprisingly popular feature of 16-bit Office. This feature came about when a college hire program manager, Dean Hakamovich, emailed D. Hatch, quickly prototyped this solution to a common problem on Windows 3 before there was a start menu or a taskbar, and it proved so interesting that it was completed using contract developers and shipped with Office 4, becoming something of an early symbol of Office as a suite, and also copied by Lotus. And it demonstrated that Office was more than a bundle, but a seamlessly integrated set of tools. With Chicago, this feature had dubious value because the enhancements to the OS, such as the start menu, but removing it was certain to be a customer pain point. It was common for IT to build lessons and documentation and training around features to be used, and every major change involved reworking such in-house curriculum. A new program manager, David Tuneman, email David TU, spent much of the release trying to devise a useful and appropriately strategic evolution of MOM. He was constantly running back and forth from building 17 to the old single X Windows buildings to find some way to integrate and show off Chicago with the with this toolbar. Ultimately, he arrived at the Office Shortcut Bar, OSB, which did the same thing as Mom, but took advantage of the new Chicago feature called Shortcuts, and once again turned out to be rather popular with IT. 
much to our surprise. We know this because when we removed it from a future release, we received a lot of complaints. We had worked across Windows and Office to build on some new capabilities in Chicago. A win-win. OSB was a feature that just kept expanding and adding a ton of complexity and exposing a ton of issues in Chicago. Reviewers and customers were enamored with OSB, even though in the end, it almost entirely overlapped with the capabilities of the Windows Start menu and Taskbar. The online version includes some screenshots of OSB. After the work on Chicago features, there were two major themes for the product release. Though to be fair, none of this was determined before the products were built. The constraints of time and not changing the file format dictated what work could be done and the themes arose by packaging those after the fact. The themes were consistency by showing off the suite and IntelliSense or doubling down on the things on doing things automatically that we introduced in Office 4. The online version includes a slide deck that I consistently evolved throughout the release on the benefits of Office that it received from Chicago. Extending autocorrect from Word 6 to Excel and PowerPoint marked some of the first shared user interface and functionality across the Office suite, and in keeping with the idea of making the suite paramount for everyone, the Word team took the lead working with OPU on making this feature happen. This didn't come without battles. As expected, Word had ideas for expanding the feature beyond Word 6, given how wildly popular it was. PowerPoint was fine with this feature, but could have easily done without the shared code and complexity. Of course, the Excel team put up a fight because not only did they resist share code, but the whole concept of autocorrect legit scared the team. The potential to introduce errors as text was automatically inserted that was different than what the person typed, by accident perhaps. Persevering, the result was a shared autocorrect feature that was a subset of the new implementation in Word, but importantly, the list of entries that were customized were shared across the product. In hindsight, this seems so very small today, but it was monumental at the time. When we did the first all-team demonstration, it registered with a huge round of applause. The online version includes screenshots of the new autocorrect across each app. Consistency was something many had identified, including me with my memo on SmartSuite, and seemed relatively easy though. But doing the work bumped up against how different users of each product were, or so each product team liked to describe. We did not embark on sharing a lot of new code to achieve user interface consistency and would save that for Office 96. There were several initiatives that proved critical to market reception and perception, as well as developing a sweet muscle in program management. Importantly, the constraints pushed us to pick high-value targets for consistency. The most visible user interface in the products were the two main toolbars, one with all the basic commands, file open and save, print, and the clipboard, and one with all the common formatting commands, bold, italic, center, underline, and so on. For the most part, what goes on in these toolbars was the result of studying people using the product and what resulting documents looked like, reverse engineering the commands used. While everyone might be different, the top commands are consistent enough that we could design toolbars to be the same across the apps. Each app had room for its own special commands on the toolbars as well. But right out of the box, we had a big step forward in consistency. Excel had tools for drawing borders, using new maps, and Word would have features for some buttons for new IntelliSense, and PowerPoint emphasized the ability to include content from Word Excel and drawing as well. In many ways, the choices of these buttons were the earliest days of today's growth hacking, as we primarily populated the toolbars with common features, but quite a few features were included because they were new or strategic in the hopes of driving awareness. The online version includes 
screenshots of the toolbars across the apps showing the new level of consistency. I'm skipping a lot of steps. Achieving consistency in toolbars was a historic battle that took years and several releases to get us even to some marketable level of consistency. Originally, even the icons were, were points of pride across different applications and different. For example, Word originally chose a piggy bank icon for save. Get it? Save? It was only after realizing that such an icon did not share the same meaning around the world that save was immortalized as the now obsolete floppy disk. There was a debate over little text bubbles appearing above buttons providing long descriptions of the graphical button called tooltips. Should they be yellow or white, and how big, and how long should they appear? Excel and Word each had different ideas of using color in those buttons and icons. Was color useful and necessary or a distraction? And this question would occupy program manager battles for an entire product cycle. The teams could not even agree on how many pixels toolbars should use. Should they be 15 or 16 pixels high? While seemingly nitpicking, the premier demonstration of the Office 4 product routinely showed off this disagreement when switching between Word and Excel and a little one pixel shift would cause the whole demo to jitter, intentionally, so to speak. The newly formed OPU led the change toward consistent and unified experience starting with the toolbars, but it did not end there. If the toolbar was the most visible, then file open was the most used piece of user interface, and it was also horribly inconsistent across products. In the MS-DOS era, the experience of opening a file was viewed as a primary competitive advantage and major topic in product reviews. The Mac made this relatively obsolete because apps used a file dialog provided in the Mac operating system. Interestingly, Windows did not have a common interface for this available to developers until very late in Windows 3.11. So the idea of competing on this interface still existed on Windows. Windows 95 had a built-in interface to use, but by then there was a challenge in that the competitors to our apps were not using any functionality from Windows or DOS, and all apps needed the much more advanced capabilities provided by themselves. For any other vendor, the idea would be to win the review and not worry about what Windows was doing. For Office, what Windows doing mattered and we had to mandate consistently to use the Windows dialog and to win reviews. Having the Windows feature pushed us in such a critical area was annoying, especially with so few on Windows committed to helping us win competitively against our competitors. We created a separate team to build a superset of the existing experiences across Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, and Windows, but use the ability to customize the new Chicago File Open dialog to build a robust and consistent file open user interface that was consistent with Windows. In addition, they would inadvertently create a small feature that would become one of the all-time great areas of complexity for Microsoft across Office, Windows, and Windows Server, an accomplishment few small teams could match. The feature came about because WordPerfect had done a fantastic job with it for MS-DOS for years, and was certainly going to bring it to Windows and to Chicago. The team built a mechanism that indexed the files on hard drive and made it quickly, easy to quickly retrieve files based on searching for content. Internally, we called this Personal Lycos, named after the earliest internet search engine. For Office 94, it was a small button in the new file open dialog and a small utility program called FindFast. When a PC was not being used, the program started up and read through the files and built an index. This was a great way to make use of all the unused processing power of a Chicago PC. But it also became one of the first features that stressed the performance of early battery-powered Chicago laptops, 
with slow hard drives and limited memory. The problem was twofold. First, people thought their PCs had become possessed by demonic forces, or worse, a virus, because the disk activity light popped on and the PC started making the grinding hard drive noise even when not being used, which was specifically when FindFast ran. Second, laptops generally had about two hours of battery life at best, and this reduced that even more. We were fast running into trouble with this feature, but at the same time, we received tons of positive feedback from early users, especially reporters and writers, where the feature worked best. Down the road, this would cause more trouble because it was clearly something that the Windows team should have done for all apps, not just Office, and Windows Server should have done something to compete with Lycos. Things were newly getting started with this technology and would follow me all the way through to my time in Windows. But we had a great and consistent file open dialogue with a new way to search for all the files gathering on ever-growing hard drives. There was a lot more to the release. One thing we learned is that when you build a product out of a bundle, no matter how hard you sell, the sum of the whole is greater than the parts, people want to see the innovation in the parts. We also learned that people like to see the whole new parts of the bundle. 